The views and opinions of shows on KCNR are those of the hosts, guests, and callers only, and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of KCNR Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Patricia Bay. You're tuning in to Therapy in a Nutshell right here on KCNR Radio, 96.5 FM, 1460 AM, your talk radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Patty, and today we're going to be talking about a difficult but very necessary subject. This is a subject of terminal illness. I can hear you now going, oh, great topic, Patty. <laughs> it's necessary. Uh, and I'm talking about terminal illness, whether you have experienced this in your family or you are experiencing it now, or if you yourself has been diagnosed with something that is life-threatening or possibly for sure going to be the way you exit this world. So it's a difficult subject, but in my experience as a therapist um, for 30-plus years, I see people who sit down in front of me who are well-prepared for this diagnosis, and I see people who have done absolutely nothing except be afraid of death and have avoided thinking about it, doing anything about it, hoping it will never happen. Um, I remember a long time ago, um, a person said to me, I said, well, what happens if you die? The person sold life insurance and never had any life insurance because he thought he was never going to die. And I said, well, what would happen with your wife? And he said, well, she can just go back to work. And I said, uh, has, hasn't she not worked for like 40 years? And he said, well, yeah, but she could just go back to work. And I thought, okay, we're dealing with an extreme fear of death here. So that's what I'm talking about. And the reason for this show is I want you to really stop and think, how prepared am I? If my doctor told me tomorrow I had six months to live or a year or three months or I had something very aggressive that was going to take me out, would you be scrambling around trying to get your things in order, including your head? Or would you feel like, okay, I can do this? So I see the whole gamut of that. And the reason I want to bring this show up is because I want you to stop and think, where am I? in this whole scheme of things. And what do I need to do to make sure that I'm not scrambling around wasting my last few months of my life trying to cross some T's and dot some I's? So the other thing is uh, in the second part of the show, I want to invite people to call in. And the, the people I'd like to call in are somebody who has experienced that terminal illness in their family and or someone who's experiencing it right now. And I'd like you to think of one thing that you've learned or that has helped you or that you hope nobody does to you again. <laughs> just, uh, just one thing. I don't want one person to call in and take a whole lot of time. But if you've got something that would help, I think the voice of experience is huge in this regard. The phone number here at the studio is 530 605 4567. 605-4567. My producer, Jared, will answer the phone and he'll put you on hold uh, until we can get you on to talk for a moment. Okay, so let's, let's talk about terminal illness. Let's say that you've come from your doctor's office and 
you went to your doctor saying something's wrong, Doc. I I don't know what's wrong. And doctor puts you through some tests. Um, if he's brilliant like Dr. Richard Malaki is, he probably already knows what you have, but he puts you through some tests to verify his diagnosis. And you end up leaving the office kind of blown out that you've been told something's pretty wrong. So step one in a terminal illness is you've been diagnosed appropriately and not by Dr. Google, you guys. It's If you feel like, you know, you've been having this problem, this medical problem, and you start Dr. Googling it, everybody that starts Googling their symptoms and stuff knows they're going to die of a brain tumor tomorrow, and it's not necessarily correct, all right? So you go get an appropriate medical exam. You get diagnosed by someone who knows what they're doing. You get put through the right tests. And let's say you've been diagnosed real reality-wise with a terminal illness. One of the first things you want to do is to learn about that illness. So if you don't know anything about pancreatic cancer or you don't know about something that might take you down in a few years versus six months, you want to do some studying about it. And you can ask your doctor where's the appropriate place to get some information. And be careful, doctor, Googling it. Like just start Googling your the name of what you've got because you can scare yourself a lot. So learning about your illness is one of the first things you need to do. And then then you need to begin to deal with the emotions. And they will hit you right there in the doctor's office. And they'll hit you in the car in the parking lot. And you'll be trying to figure out, how do I tell my family? How do I let friends know? What what do I want to do here? What do I believe in? What Am I afraid to die? You'll be reeling, okay? And that's normal. So sometimes I have people call me and say, I've just been diagnosed with a terminal illness and I need some help figuring out the road in front of me. And I think that's kind of cool. When you can talk to somebody who's not afraid to talk to you about it, who doesn't start offering platitudes or false hope or telling you about their sister's brother's cousin's uncle who became, I don't know, started eating this way and fixed it or took this medicine and cured it or went to Mexico and doesn't have it anymore, um, you will hear hear stories from people of how you don't need to worry because you can get rid of it. Those can be trying to hear, and it's not always comfortable. So by the end of the show, if you have learned of a friend or family member that has a terminal illness, I'm hoping to give you some clues on how to be supportive without being annoying. I'm also hoping to tell you, if you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness, how to sit with it and hold it and try to work on what do I feel. Um, You want to explore your treatment options with your doctor. Your doctor will probably send you somewhere that specializes in what you have. In this day and age, it could take you six months to get an appointment with that neurologist or that special specialist. Hopefully, you can get in right away, but you want to explore treatment options, and doing that with your doctor is really important. You want to be able to weigh the repercussions of treatment options. So you might decide to go through chemo or something like that to buy yourself an extra six months or a year, but you have to really ask your doctor, what is my quality of life like on these treatments? So that you can make an informed decision for yourself. Not everybody make a decision for you. That's one of the hardest parts of having a terminal illness is everybody wants to tell you what to do. 
If you want to be able to talk about death with someone who gets it and doesn't offer platitudes or is afraid to talk to you about it or, or false hope and tells you you'll be fine, someone who can really listen to you. And then you want to be able to explore palliative care and hospice care and learn the difference about them. And we're going to talk more about that in this show so you have some options. All right, we're going to go to break in a minute. Um, I've got Dr. Richard Malaki sitting here in the studio with me, and he does an incredible job with diagnoses. He's also got a big, huge heart and is very caring about all his patients and is always willing to come join me here on the show to offer his medical expertise, and I deeply appreciate that because he's really good. So we're going to talk more about how do you deal with terminal illness and where do you go when you've been given that diagnosis? So, again, if you want to call in in the second part of the show with a brief statement about something you've learned or something that's helped you or something that was super annoying that you wish people wouldn't do to people with terminal illness, the number here is 530-605-4567. All right, we're going to go to break, and we'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Therapy in a Nutshell. This is Dr. Patty, and we're talking about terminal illness. You know, when a lot of people get diagnosed with a terminal illness, people say, go get your affairs in order. Okay, if your affairs aren't in order, yes, go get your affairs in order. But if you get anything out of this show today, I want you to stop and think, I don't care if I'm afraid to die or not. I don't care whether I believe about death or not. I need to make sure that my ducks are in a row for a few things. You need to have your wills and trusts done. Even if you can't afford to have a will and you print one off from the Internet and you get it notarized or you go make an appointment with an attorney, if you have more than $600,000 in assets, you better have a trust or your heirs are going to really lose out on what you leave to your heirs. You'll leave a whole lot more to the government. Um, So you need to know what your options are for leaving specific instructions. You don't want your estate to go through probate. It's expensive and time-consuming. So get your head out of your denial and go see an attorney. Research it on a legal site and find out what you need to do to make sure that your affairs are in order long before you ever need it. And then give a document to the attorney. Give one to your most trusted friend or child and put one in the safe. So you cover your tush Then, if you get a diagnosis of a terminal illness, all that's in place. The other thing is funeral arrangements. Don't wait until you have a terminal illness diagnosis to go talk about funeral arrangements or to set aside what you're going to need. Um, if you if you think you're going to have some $10,000 casket and a big, huge funeral, you better put the money aside for that or you might be really stressing your heirs. Um, uh, I tell you a funny story. When my husband Rich was dying, he posted on his Facebook, I got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is I bought my urn today and I really like it. The bad news is I paid for my cremation services. <laughs> and he was he was kind of cracking up. And he thought that was hysterical. And I'm like, oh, geez, you put that on your Facebook? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but he thought it was funny. But he wanted to make sure that that wasn't left in my lap, and it was picked out, and it was there. So, actually, when he died, I 
it was a smile on my face thinking he picked out this urn and he really likes it. <laughs> so get your stuff in order, you guys. Don't put it off. The other thing is once you've got a terminal illness, if you haven't repaired relationships or feel complete with things that you haven't been able to do with family and friends, it's it's important for you to try and finish that off for your sake and for theirs. But then we're back to you. You can ask. You can be spiritually and lovingly correct in trying to fix things. But if somebody won't meet you part way, you can't make them love you. I'm sorry, but you can't make people love you. You can only try. So that's a whole other show. Um, I'm not begging anyone to love me. You can listen to that. You can also tune into my show on DNR. Go back and look at my podcast on Dr. Patricia Bay, Therapy in a Nutshell podcast, and pull the one up on DNR and the one up on I Can't Make Anybody Love Me. So, Dr. Malaki, you're right here being very patient. Hi, Dr. Patty. <laughs> and I know that you diagnose people with terminal illness. You've been doing this 42 years, and you've told a lot of people they're going to die. Yes. Right, way in here. Yeah, it's it's probably my least favorite part of my job, but it's a, it's a part of the job. And even for a while, like five or six years, I was medical director of a hospice here in town, so I, I did that a lot. Um, and even though it's the least favorite part of my job, the, the reality testing, which you already mentioned, is we it's not an option. You know, Dying is not an yeah, option. We're yeah, we're all going to do it. So, yeah. And... Uh, and sometimes we uh, know it's coming, uh, the ones we're talking about, people who know it's coming. Um, per, I prefer to be hit by an F-150, you know, <laughs> at about 70 miles an hour. I'd probably pay one of my friends to do that. No. But, uh, but uh, no, we we don't get to choose. And I've had some amazing conversations in the office over all those years. Or, you know, I remember talking to an 82-year-old guy, and he was, I just met him for the first time. We were doing his physical, and, and he was very pleasant. And, you know, and then he looked at me, and he said, yeah, and if I die someday. And then he kept going on with his line of thought, and I just thought, well, now wait a second here. You're going to be the first one who doesn't <laughs> do it? So we are all going to do it. And getting ready, like, from our point of view, we really, like, if you're 50 and up, like, have that conversation with your doctor about, about you know, DNR or do I want to be on a ventilator or, you know, mm-hmm. do I want a feeding tube? And, you know, most, you know, most people that do my job, I think, you know, I'm like this. Most people wouldn't treat their patient any different than they treat their own mom. But it's better to have the conversation and have the conversation in your head. Have the conversation with your family. Like, hey, do you want to be cremated or not? You know, right. those are all, all things. No one can divine that stuff. Right. Um, we don't like breaking ribs on a 92-year-old grandma in the ER because Doing the family's yeah, yeah the family's insisting on CPR and and it's in fact I only did it once my whole time and I'm never doing it again. Uh, and I have looked at the family and said, no, I'm not doing that. Well, in, the, in my show on DNR, I talk about the difference between DNR, do not resuscitate, which is doing oh, there's all, CPR there's all on all kinds somebody, of layers. and then there's I want the right to die. I don't yeah. want feeding tubes and extraordinary means and uh, ventilators and. Well, and there's a. That's continu- different than DNR, and people, and people want, need to know it. And some people want a chemical code. You know, if they're if they're having you know a primary cardiac problem, and we give them some medicines through their vein that that makes their problem go away, but they don't have to have you know an intubation. They don't have to have CPR. Well, we have that option too. 
So there's so much to think about and to be prepared for knowing so that when somebody says, are you DNR? Do not resuscitate. That just means, are you willing for us to do CPR on you? It doesn't mean all the other things. Correct. So you need to be informed. So you see people that you diagnose with a terminal illness. And we see pe- you and I both see people who range all the way from calm acceptance to total panic and fear and everything in between. Yes. And so our job as professionals dealing with people who are dying is to help them calm down and listen to them as to what they want. Now, the the benefit of my job is I've got almost a whole hour to do that. It's it's hard for you to sit there and say, uh, let's talk about all your wishes here because... Well, with those patients, we make enough time. You always make enough time for people, and you're really, really good at that. And your compassion is extreme, and you are very different than most doctors. Well, but, and it takes, some, it takes a while with some people. Like my record holder had to have four visits before she accepted that she had a terminal cancer diagnosis. Right. You know, I told her all four visits that she had cancer, and finally at the end of the fourth visit, she said, now, is this going to kill me? And I told her four times. Yeah. You know, over over about a ten day yeah, over about a ten day period. So so yeah, and it's it's miserable because most in our culture most of us don't spend very much time thinking about the end. You know, we we're just skipping through our life and and um, you know, not paying attention. My my dad's a retired Lutheran minister. He spent most of his time not in the pulpit. He spent most of his time driving around counseling people or, you know, going to the hospital mostly. People on and, their deathbed. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, being there for them at the end. And, and uh, you know, that's that was he always said that was his most important job. Right. But, um, and, you know, one of the things I see in my office is people that have a thought process about their death, whether it's a very firmly grounded in their spiritual or religious practices and they have decided this is what this means to me or somebody who has no thought, only fear about dying, there's a huge difference in how you see them begin to take care of preparations like wills and trusts. Um, To talk to somebody who's extremely fearful to die, it's hard to talk to them about DNR or anything like that. So people have a choice, and you and I know that. They can choose to do extraordinary means. They can choose to do extraordinary means because they don't want to leave their little children because they're young. Um, Or like my mom said, after Rich died, she said, I'm a short-timer here because she was getting into her 90s, and she said, I'm not going to be around forever, but I'm not going until I know you're okay. And it really touched my heart. She said, when I see you stronger and doing better, then I will tell you that I'm not going to be around much longer. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And, you know, and there's a gamut of uh, terminal illness diagnosis. Like some, it's not always cancer. You know, sometimes like my mom died last year, last April of congestive heart failure. And she just, you know, she didn't have a heart attack. She just, you know, our hearts beat three million times a month, and after 91 years, her heart was done. And um, and that's a that's a much slower, more gradual, creepy thing over several years yeah. that happens instead of not creepy you know, as in weird, creepy no, as creeping, yeah, creeping. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's slow, it's real slow, and and uh, it's almost hard to watch it happen. Yeah, it creeps but, up uh, on you. Yeah, yeah, but uh, then you know sometimes. You know, you see somebody with an inoperable brain tumor, and it's like, boy, 
you know, if yeah. not, it won't be long now. Well, I, I, a uh, special forces friend of mine who um, I know really well talked about how one of his special forces guys was dying of cancer. And he said to him, I think you're really lucky. And the guy said, what do you mean? He said, well, we could have been blown out of the water so many times in what we did, but you actually got to be home around your loved ones, make sure all your affairs were in order, take this last year of your life moving into your death to be present and not just, you know, they get an announcement one day that you died in country. And his fellow special forces person said, I hadn't thought of it that way. And it yeah. was kind of beautiful. Yeah, at the hospice, especially, you know, because everybody in the hospice, everyone knows it's coming. And so, right. and we don't all get that privilege. Sometimes someone runs a red light and boom, you know, you're here one minute, gone the next. Right. So. But, you know, when people are dying and they accept it, it's interesting to work with death. They start making death humor jokes. Oh, yeah. And in it's fact, funny. A lot of those hospice patients will try to make me feel better. I know. You know, because in hospice, you go to their house, you make a house call, and um, they're so cute. And and most of them, yeah, I would, you know, I would be kind of upset because I get to know their life story and, mm-hmm. you know, try to make sure that all their, that they've, all their needs have been uh, met medically, especially, and, and make sure the pain thing is under control. And they, they would just say, hey, don't take it so hard, Doc, you know. And, uh, and Doc, everybody dies. Exactly. Lighten up. Yeah, they, they, were, they were like that. And it was, in retrospect, very fascinating uh, for me. It's, it's so illuminating for who we are in this life and how you do your life and how you do your death. And so yeah. many people don't want to be this transparent about it. All right, we're going to go to break. When we come back, uh, Dr. Malaki and I are going to talk to you about the difference between palliative care and hospice and death with dignity. Um, so hang on. Don't, don't leave us because if you've got a terminal illness, you're going to want to just really hear all this information. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Therapy in a Nutshell. This is Dr. Patty. You're listening to the incredibly beautiful music of Native American flutist Randy McGinnis. And, and i got to tell you, Randy's music has been played many times at people passing over. It is peaceful, and the spiritual connection when you listen to his music is absolutely beautiful. And it's perfect for this show, and I am deeply appreciative to Randy, whom I love dearly for letting us use his music on our show. You can go to randymcginnis.com and check out all six of his CDs. They're gorgeous. Okay, we're talking about terminal illness, and I know this is a hard subject. Um, But I can tell you the families that I see that do better with terminal illness diagnoses are the ones that really talk about it. They don't start pretending like it's not happening. you don't have someone in the family who's absolutely paranoid of death to be pushing you to do one more chemo treatment or do extraordinary means or to stay at all costs even though your quality of life is gone. What your quality of life is and how much you're willing to fight or let go or be done has to be up to the person who's diagnosed. It can't be up to somebody in the family who's afraid to lose you. And I don't mean to be so crass when I say that, but they're In every family, there's usually a couple of people that are just extremely paranoid about death or they have no spiritual foundation that gives them any kind of belief system of what happens when you die. 
and they feel lost. And that's a therapeutic issue. I deal with that in my office all the time. People are afraid to die. But all of a sudden it comes to the forefront when a family member has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And some people want to fight longer and harder. Somebody that has little children at home might say, I have to stay every day longer that I can. When Rich was dying of his terminal brain disease, uh, he I remember the day he told me, I've wrapped my head around leaving you and leaving the girls, our two adult daughters. He said, but I have to stay every day that I can for Allison, for Allie. And that was my daughter Tara's daughter. So our granddaughter, he said, Allie needs me to be here every single day longer that I can be here. And he pushed. He stayed probably two years longer than he would have if he weren't doing it for Allie. She was the shining light in his eyes. It was beautiful. Okay, so Dr. Malaki, we're going to talk about when you've diagnosed somebody with a terminal illness. What would make them decide palliative care versus hospice care? And can you give us a brief difference in what the two are? Well, okay, yeah, so on, on hospice, I think this varies state to state. So in California, um, you qualify for the hospice if a doctor says that there's a reasonable expectation that you will die within six months. And the way it works with hospice is when we know that we can't fix what you've got, um, there's, you know, if you have chest pain, they don't race you to the hospital. You know, they try to make the hospice nurses who walk on the water, by the way, they're, oh, they're they walk incredible. on the water. Mm-hmm. And uh, the ones I worked with, had the privilege of working with, were just fantastic. But, um, you know, when, when you're signed up for hospice, like I remember when I was doing the hospice, I had this one really cute little gal. She was a widow, and she um, she lived in a trailer, and she, her, her, pulmonary function test, she had COPD. She had smoked all her life, and she had quit at that point, but her breathing tests were incompatible with life. There's no reason she should have been alive. And uh, I recertified her four times. That woman lived for two years, you know, because if you make it past the first six months, then we re-up you. Right. Or you uh, get off hospice. Yeah. You can get off hospice. Oh, yeah, you can graduate from hospice. I've seen that a few times, Well, there's two ways to graduate from hospice. Exactly. But one of them's up and one's, you know, Yeah, and and the majority of time we get the patients away too late for hospice, you know, because of the denial of things and, and the, you know, the inability to accept that that someone's dying. Like we can, hospice can help people the whole last six months of their life of their with their death and help the family and help, you know, just tremendous help. But people have such a, you know, a fear of engaging the hospice because then it means so somehow that they've given up. Right. And, it, you know, it's funny because I see people that I encourage to get on hospice. They don't want to do the palliative care where they're being helped to try and stay alive with comfort. Right. But... So palliative care is for people that aren't necessarily said they have six months to live. Right. But I, people will say, I'm not ready to die. And I go, hospice isn't about being ready to die. Hospice is about they have full permission to make you comfortable. And so I see people that go on hospice right right away when the doctor says you've got a terminal illness. Yes. And hospice doesn't have to see them every day. They don't move into their house with them, but they can help make them so comfortable that those last six months can have way more quality than they would have if you just muscled. Yes, because in, once you once you're qualified for hospice and you're engaged in the hospice system, you are um, you have access to a bunch of resources that you can't get when you're on palliative care. 
Right. So, and and the resources are fabulous. But your the trade off is, hey, if something happens, I'm not going to be raised to the hospital, and they're not going to try to do extraordinary means to save my life. Which, right. you know, if you really think it through, you don't want that anyway. So many people, when they say, okay, I've accepted that I've got a terminal diagnosis. Um, I've decided that I don't want to be resuscitated. I don't want extraordinary means to keep me alive. I want to go peacefully. I want my family around me. I want I want to have some way to orchestrate my death a little bit. Hospice is so supportive of that, and they are angels. They do a beautiful job not interfering, but giving you advice, keeping you comfortable, helping you find quality of life. Yes. And then if it gets down to the very end where you're bedridden or you need a special kind of bed to be comfortable. All those things. They can help you be comfortable and safe. They get out of the way. They know when to back off and not interfere. And, and lots of They're folks beautiful. are, the main fear is, well, one of the biggest fears I think is pain control. And we got that figured out now. I mean, we can make everybody comfortable as they're dying. Yes. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, 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 it's not a tough problem. Right. And, and the hospice nurses know how to do that. I think for many, it is more of a psychological issue. Uh, I want to tell a beautiful story about a friend of mine that just recently died a few, two weeks ago. Um, I saw her about uh, two weeks before that, so about a month ago. She said, you know, I'm at the end. And I'm I'm going to die pretty soon. And I said, okay, how do you feel about that? And she said, I'm kind of excited. And I said, you know what? You get to know. You get to know what all of us uh, believe spiritually or religiously. You get to, to know. And she said, I know. And it's yeah, kind of I've, exciting. I've heard enough people tell me about going to the light who we've resuscitated. Yeah, exactly. And it's like you, you kind of wake them up and they think, well, what would you do that for? Yeah, leave me alone. But she's, I said to her, how do you want to die? And so many people won't even say the D word. They say, how do you want to pass on? How, you know, part of me after dealing with terminal illness with Rich, I say the word die. So I said to her, how do you want to die? She said, you know what? I want to have a big old party. I yep. want to have a party, say goodbye to everybody. And then I'd like them all to leave. And I want just the people, my family and close, closest people to me around my bed. And so we talked about whether she was to go on hospice or whether she goes ahead with death with dignity, where you have to qualify in a certain way. There are, there are, you have to have two doctors say you're within six months of dying. You have to ask in writing. Fifteen days later, you have to ask again. Um, the doctors have to sign off. Then they give you a prescription for the medication that will take you out very beautifully and painlessly. And so she ended up going through that process. She got her death with dignity medicine together, put it in the safe, and then decided not to have the party because it turned out to be exhausting and too much work <laughs> to to try and pull that off, but ended up dying in bed with hospice there with all her family around her, and it was an absolutely beautiful passing, and I just, I was happy for her, Sure, but she was not afraid. And she and I were cracking a couple of death jokes and, you know, and it, it was just a beautiful passing. And it would be glorious if all of us could feel that way. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to do this show in honor of Sherry, because she was such a beautiful soul and really gave a gift to a lot of people with how graciously she died. And so you get to see that sometimes. Oh, yeah. I've seen some amazing things. Um, probably 25 years ago, one of my uh, 
gosh, you know, there are only nice people get cancers. This <laughs> this woman was a nurse, and so she was well aware of what she had when we found it. But by the time we found it, she just suddenly came up with pain in the middle of her back, and she had metastatic pancreatic cancer. And and most of the time, that particular tumor doesn't show up and t- doesn't. We don't find it, or their patients don't have any symptoms. We wish it would hurt right away. They don't have any symptoms until it's too late to fix, and it's almost always too late to fix. And she knew exactly what she had. She took her whole family on a big vacation. Mm-hmm. She got, you know, and she she was great, so she didn't have to mend any relationships. But And she was on, on with the hospice from the very beginning, and she had complete pain control and and did it on her terms and and. I was really, I really admired her because she mm-hmm. didn't want to have the last months of her life ruined with chemo, yeah. because the chemo, well, especially 25 years ago, doesn't work very good. Well, I, it, and a lot of people have said to me, if if horrid chemo is going to buy me three more months or six more months, I don't want the last six months of my life to have no quality. Exactly. But to, in order to do that, you have to be accepting and not afraid. And I want to qualify that because can you be afraid and move into acceptance? Yes. Because if we look at even Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages Stages. of dying and death and grief and loss, you know, it's, it's normal to start out with denial. Well, maybe this, maybe I don't have that kind of cancer. Maybe I'm not going to die or maybe they can fix this. Um, and it's normal to go into anger and be upset about it. Why me? And I've seen this too, where it's about it, you know, for all cancers all lumped together, it's about there's about a three percent spontaneous remission rate. It can and, happen. Oh, I've seen it before, where the, the patients just have this god awful thing, and then uh, six months later, the tumor's gone, and nobody knows why. And yeah, who knows how their body fought it off or whatever. So, and everybody's heard the story about somebody who survived, and that gives. You hope sometimes, sometimes sure. irrational hope, but that bargaining that happens is maybe if I do chemo, I'll be one of those people that goes into remission or that it goes away. And maybe you have to try that. Okay, well, I understand that. Maybe I don't know what I would choose for myself. I might say I want to stay as long as I can, and I might be willing to put up with some stuff that makes me stay longer. Well, and we shared that patient last year that had a mm-hmm. really rare um, tumor and very bad prognosis, and the chemo tried it a couple of times and really made him feel lousy. So, you know, I just I just put him on the hospice, and that was what he needed. And he had such a glorious attitude. He and yeah. his wife are just dear, dear people, and she was so supportive of him and his choices, and he he was an amazing, amazing yeah. guy. Yeah, it was and a privilege a, to know him. Yeah, and he did a beautiful job in his, the last six months of his life and he did a beautiful job in his death it was i was honored to be part of that so you know after you you do the bargaining about you know if i do this chemo maybe it'll buy me more time or maybe it'll put me in remission or maybe i'll be one of those people who spontaneously gets rid of what's wrong with me and then there's kind of a letdown of depression with okay this is it and then there's it's normal to be thinking have i lived a good life have I done the things I need to do? And you can see why this is an important process and not when we particularly want you to be running around trying to do your will and trust. You should have had that out of the way. Yes. All right. We're going to go to break. And when we come back for the last section, I, I want to see if we can really 
give you some stuff to help yourself and to help others that you know that might be terminally ill. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Therapy in a Nutshell. This is Dr. Patty, and I'm here with Dr. Richard Malaki, and we're talking about terminal illness. And I have a very, very special caller on the line right now. Um, I don't know if she wants to say her name or not, so I'm going to allow her to stay anonymous. But if you want to say your name, you know I love you. Um, and I'm very grateful for you calling in. Please, please tell us what you wanted to say. Hi. Um well, something that sticks with me that I think could help someone that has been told that they are terminal. And my husband, I saw way too many uncomfortable days for what he had left was fear of suffering. Even though... We know that hospice can give him morphine. He wanted to know how how does he die? How, what really happens? Is his heart going to just stop? Is he going to suffocate? Uh, he kept worrying about that, and he kept asking everybody, "How? How? How? What's going to happen when I do die? What's it going to do to me?" So no one could really give him the functions of, or they didn't tell him, and maybe they didn't know how, but it would have helped him if he, if a doctor or a nurse um, would have said, this is how you, you know, how your organs will stop or your heart, your whatever, I think that would have made him understand the process better and not be so fearful of what to expect. What am I supposed to feel here? What? I think that's a, a anyway. really, really good point because if you know what the end, the very end is going to look like. You can make a picture in your mind. Yeah, you can make a picture in your mind and you can relax. So let's... Let's allow Dr. Malaki to speak to that. And he's, you know, as a hospice doctor for five or six years before in his career, he saw it all the time. I've helped a lot of people actually die. I've been, like, there with them as they actually die because I end up getting called the angel of death because death doesn't scare me. Right. But I think you're making a really, really good point, and a lot of people don't know how to ask that. So thank you so much for being vulnerable enough and brave enough to call in. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And and my answer, I think, is going to sound like a little bit of a fudge because mm-hmm. we... Let's, let's let her be able to hang up so we can talk. Okay. So she doesn't have to sit okay. there and you can listen. Thank She's going to be so hanging. Thank, oh, yeah, thank you for calling in. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, it's an excellent question. And part of the reason my answer sounds wishy-washy is we have a pretty hard time. You know, I've seen hundreds of people die. Then at the mm-hmm. bedside... You know, back in the early days of training, people that have been shot, people who have gone through the windshield of a car, and, you know, I've held a lot of hands during those last few moments. And mm-hmm. and um, we have a pretty hard time predicting it because the human body is so tough. Um, it's just tough. Like most of the time, if you're dying from 
uh, like a cancer that's spread to different parts of your body, metastatic cancer, and the last few days you start not being able to eat. That is typical, presages mm-hmm. everything. And then the last couple of days, often you're not really able to drink. Um, eventually you'll, um, the patients most of the time will lose consciousness, but their heart's still beating and they're still breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a sort of a choreographed thing um, that happens as the brain um, tends, to, uh, our brains tend to swell up and, and push the midbrain and the and the brainstem out through the little hole in the base of your skull, which isn't a very good mental image, but but we go through different uh, respiratory patterns, which are a little disturbing to the family if you don't haven't heard about it before. Now, our hospice, and I think most hospices, we have a booklet we give everyone mm-hmm. that describes, um, you know, Shane Stokes' respiration, and and uh, and it's amazing how long it can take after the patient loses consciousness, stops eating, stops drinking. They're not in pain; they're unconscious. But it's amazing how long that sometimes takes. It can take a couple of days. Yeah, that can be two or three. Oh days. yeah, yeah, and it's uh, and and her critic her criticism is completely legitimate. Now everybody thinks you die like you die on TV. Somebody just got a smile on their face and they close their eyes and that's <laughs> it. And that's never it. You nobody dies like Very they die on TV. Yeah. yeah, it just doesn't happen. So so. At hospice, we normally, like, I I always talked about that stuff, but I, I th- all the doctors are different, nurses are different. So. Well, and so many people are fearful to talk about the end or to ask the question that she's so bravely asking. What will it look like at the very end? And one of the things of, of the, I have not been at hundreds of deaths, but I've been through quite a number, probably about 12, and one of the things that has always been so beautiful about it is the love that you feel in the room. Yes. And the family that's around and the person knowing the support that's there with them, even when they're unconscious. So even if you hear some of those things like the death rattle and the breathing, um, the slow respiration where there'll, there'll be a breath every so often and their heart rate is slowing down, uh, there's something beautiful about it. Yeah, and, and and hospice makes them comfortable. And I've had more than one time where I was pretty sure the patient was unconscious, but uh, then when a loved one talks to them, they squeeze their hand. Oh, you know, and it's like, whoa, where'd that come from? Oh. You know? My dad did that. Yeah, I was yeah. talking to him, and all of a sudden, I I saw a tear run down his face. Yeah, and because I was talking to him about, I know he had a lot of regrets, but he was a really good dad. And I was telling him the way he was a good dad. And I thought he was unconscious, and all of a sudden this tear starts running down his face, and he died about ten minutes later. Yeah, was yeah. beautiful. Yeah, it's her question is totally legit, and I think that's one of the that's one of the ways that we could spiff up our act a little. Well, and and my, I think my department. her giving people permission and the knowledge to ask the question. So here's the takeaway from that. If you're terminally ill, your loved one is terminally ill, and you're getting hospice on board, sit the hospice worker down and say, look, we need to know what the end might look like. We realize you can't totally predict what the last day will look like or the last few hours, but can you tell us what we can generally expect or watch for? Ask the question. Hospice workers are not afraid to talk about death. And they do it in such an open, straight-up way. They won't get political on you. They won't get religious on you. They will take you from where you're coming from. 
So if you say to the hospice worker, tell us what the end might look like. Yeah, and, and they'll uh, tell you. They will. And the other thing is, which I think Patty has seen this too, but I remember one, one death really uh, poignantly. Um, this patient was about 75, but she'd smoked all her life. She had really bad emphysema and, uh, and she was dying and she, she hadn't, you know, thought through all that stuff. So she was in the ICU and the ICU called me at uh, lunchtime. So I ran over there and, uh, because she had lost consciousness and her whole family was there and it was, it was really kind of cool. They're, they're all holding hands and. It's a hard one for you, huh? She was a really nice person. Yeah. So anyway, I held her head and I told her, I said, you know, um, her name was Blanche. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cute. Yeah, she uh, she was uh, she was like a force of nature. She was so cool. And I held her hand and I said, "Hey, Blanche, you know your whole family's here now, and you know you fought hard your whole life, and you've taken good care of everybody. Your grandkids are here. I think it's okay. I think it's okay for you to go." Mm-hmm. And it was five seconds. The the monitor went flatline. You know, you're bringing up a really the important permission. point. You give permission. Yeah. When you say you don't have to hang on for me, or we all are here with you and we're all cheering you on to go, um, rock on, do it. You know, and you give permission and with joy and with yes. love. It's it's powerful. So when somebody you know is dying. One of the gifts that you can give to them is you can say, talk to me. Don't tell them what to think. Don't lecture them about religion. Don't do, um, don't put mm, your own needs listen. in there. Just listen. And when you can say to them, how do you feel about this? And if they say, I'm so scared, just listen. Get the duct tape, put it over your mouth, and just listen. You don't need to fix them. You don't need to change their thinking. And when you say to them, is there something I can do to be supportive of you? It might be just go over there and sit with them and say, hey, how are you doing today? Talk to me. Don't fix them. Because when somebody's been given a terminal illness, it's not the time for you to change who they are or to make them stay for you because you're afraid. So if you are super fearful of death, consider getting into therapy now. Get ready by putting your affairs in order now, your wills, your trust, your funeral arrangements. You Let, feel a lot better. Oh, gosh, it's a huge relief. Yep. If you are terminally ill and you want to have the option of exiting on your own plan and your own dignity, and you do what you need to do to do a death with dignity plan and put it in the safe, many people who do that never use it. They have it there for if they need it or if they just can't handle, in, you know, Taking it down. Just so someone can read, this is what I want. Yeah, and write it out. So do what you need to do or get the advice that you need. Listen to the show on DNR. Listen to the show on I'm Not Begging Anyone to Love Me. Um, Look at Dr. Patricia Bay, Therapy in a Nutshell podcast, and anyone that jumps out at you is really important. If you are super afraid of losing somebody, like you're afraid your mom's going to die or you're afraid one of your children's going to die, Remember that your fear can ruin every day of your living life. And if you get diagnosed with a terminal illness or they get diagnosed with a terminal illness, what do you want what you want to do is live every day until you die. So uh, it's it's a powerful experience and it's a beautiful experience. I would 
never, ever change Rich dying in my arms. That was the last great gift I could give him, and it was the last most beautiful thing for us. And I was not afraid of him dying, but it was very sad for him dying. I was not afraid for him. He was going to be out of pain. So many times when people have a terminal illness and they're just so miserable and so in pain, it's a relief to see them out of pain. And that doesn't mean you're not grieving. Don't get mistaken between relief and grief. Two slightly different things that happen at the same time sometimes. All right. I want to I end this show with a really important story. really good friend of mine that I was literally there the last couple of weeks of his life and helped him pass over, um, literally was sitting by his bed. And it was about three days before he died. He was diagnosed with a really aggressive cancer and only had about three months to live. So those of us that loved him were in and out a lot trying to help him. And at the very end, about three days before he died, he looked at me and he said, you know, Patty, the, one of the blessings of this terminal illness has been I opened up my heart and I learned how to love. And it was so 